ready? Let's do it. I'm ready. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I'm your host, Nick Bilton, and I have a cold, so I apologize if I sound like a 900 phone number. But my guest does not have a cold. Do you want to introduce yourself? I'm here. I'm DeRay. I'm an activist, an author, and a podcast host. And uh, and a blue vest wearing podcast a host. Blue vest wearing. So I've been trying to get DeRay on this podcast for what? How long now? Probably. He's lying, everybody. Two I, years. I always said yes, and it he always just... said yes, and then he never showed up. And I'm so here. I'm very excited that he's finally here. I have so many questions for you. Um, so many things that we're going to discuss. I want to begin with something in the news, which is uh, there was a football game this week. I don't watch football, but I saw the football game footage. And um, Donald Trump was in the, in the stands and everyone was cheering for for people who were in the army and the Navy and so on. And then the the screen flashed to Donald Trump and everyone started to boo. And then they started to chant, lock him up which I thought was pretty amazing, right? And then the following day, you get like people like Joe Scarborough on, on Morning Joe and, and, and some Democratic senators that are saying you shouldn't do that. However, you go to a Trump rally, which I've been to, and they are, they're booing about everyone. They're yelling, lock her up. It's, it's way worse. So as an activist, my question is, A, do you think it was right for people to boo, right? To let him know that they don't agree with his policies. And B, it's kind of like the, the, the Michelle Obama quote of, of when they go low, we go high. It, that's not always the case, right? Like, what's, what's your theory on all of this? I think it's interesting, too, in the context of this past week where the Republicans, like, stormed the congressional hearing, you know? Yeah. Uh, in the sense that they are the party that's like, civil disobedience is wrong, you shouldn't be doing this stuff. And then they are doing everything they want to do. I think two things. One is that the left hasn't yet recognized that when the norms are shattered, they're no longer norms. Is that people are like playing a game that doesn't exist anymore. Trump has effectively shattered all norms around civility, all norms around decorum. The Republicans, you think about what they did to sort of say the rules should be the rules, and then they storm a congressional hearing that like, the norms are gone. And when I think about even the presidential race, it's like, I think people want to fight her. I think that that's why people like AOC is that at least you see somebody who's willing to go like put everything on the table and like fight. And when you think about that Michelle Obama quote, his organizers, we would say that like when they go low, we go high is not about pacifism, is not about sort of standing down, that that's actually about fighting as hard as we've ever fought, that when they go low, we go high is and we go high back to the ideals and the values that brought us to the work in the first place. So when we think about the Trump thing, it's like the least people could do is like yell at it. I mean, he has done so much awful stuff that the least people could do would be like lock him up, especially in the middle of the impeachment. It's not even like out of context a chant, <laughs> whereas most of his chants about Hillary and Biden are just like just random. Out of nowhere, yeah. Yeah. This is like in the middle of an impeachment where it seems pretty clear that collusion happened, you know? So do you think that um, when when you look at what happened in Congress where the Republicans are storming the, you know, for dramatic, of course, effect, um, do you think that, that how do you, how is it that you would, if you were advising the Democrats, because I think that one of the big problems is that the Democrats are, they don't, they don't respond in the way that they should on anything. I mean, if you look at the response to, uh, you know, what happened with Al Franken um, and how there's people now coming out saying, oh, well, maybe we kind of reacted in the wrong way. Um, they, when you look at those things, would your advice be to the Democrats to to go even harder or to try to show some civility or w- where is the line? 
I think that the Dems are playing a game of how do we make sure we win, which makes sense to me because it's politics. I think there are two camps. There are camps that say that like the moderates will always be the place where power is, that like America is sort of in the middle on most things. And then there are the people like the AOCs. It's like, grow the base, right? That like the numbers grow are on the our side. Grow the left wing base. Yeah, and grow the it. base, right? The numbers are on our side. Like the sheer amount of people are on our side. The question is, can we convince them that voting matters? And can we convince them that they have a home in the party? And I think that you see the AOCs, I think you see the younger generation, it's like, the only reason they got here is because the base grew. People who didn't normally vote, voted. I think you see the Pelosi's that are like, let's go with the people who have always voted every time. And I think that that's where like the disconnect is. My advice to people would be, my advice to the party would be like, fight like hell. Uh, I think that uh, Trump is like trying to kill you. And it's weird that people are like sending him letters or you're like, he doesn't care. You know, he is like... It's weird that three years in, people are still trying to play, quote, by the rules as opposed to like going all out. You think it should be like knife fight? Oh, I think this should be like war to the end. Especially because the Republican, here's what I think the Republicans do. Trump's going to lose and the Republicans are going to be like, you guys are good people. Wait, don't. you really think he's going to lose? I think Trump's going to lose. You do? I don't know if he'll vacate the presidency, but I, think, <laughs> <laughs> but I think he will lose. I think he'll lose the vote. And I think the Republicans will shift and say he was wild, not us. Let us go back to what the rules look like. We didn't participate in that. Like we were forced to. And I think the Dems right now will be like, you're right. And like that is a that is such a wild proposition, but I wouldn't put it past the party today. I totally agree with you. I think that they they will uh, I mean, look, Obama chose not to prosecute any of the Bush folks for the 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 war crimes that they had done. And I think that it's a it's kind of like a one-way street a lot of the times and and I completely agree with people chanting and i think that it's great he the problem with trump is he he puts himself in these bubbles of around yes men and yes women and all he wants is for people he surrounds himself at these rallies with the people that agree with him it's great that he finally gets to see what what most people really think about him and for what what's so frustrating is to see a, a journalist who he's ragged on and and so on uh, come out there and be like, oh, we shouldn't do that. It's like that's not that's not the we should be doing that. It's also one of the things that since you're on Trump is that uh, so few so few things get to him. You know, with most political leaders, like we know how to we know to press this button or this issue is their issue. With Trump, it's like eh, he just doesn't really care. The only thing he cares about is attention, yep. right? So when you think about a political strategy to get him to respond, it's like the chant probably is the only effective thing we know matters. Like the only reason why the summit's not at a property he owns is because of public outrage. It's not because like the party lobbied crazy on the back end, you know? Well, that's what I think so fascinating is that public outrage, even in this presidency, does have an impact. You know, the immigration rules that when they were separating families, there was so much public outrage that it changed. And and I think that people kind of sometimes lose sight of the fact that they do have some power, even with this lunatic in office. Yeah, I don't know if it's power. I think that that might be a stretch. Pressure? Yes. I think that there's like a modicum of influence that you have. The hard part is that that has done very little to policy. It's done more to sort of uh, his random behavior. So you think about like, there've been a couple judges that we've gotten uh, not appointed because of public pressure, but he, I don't know if you saw this last couple of weeks, he's appointed two more judges who were rated not qualified, right? That just like went under the radar. The only one that you know, probably like the most people know is the guy who was the guy at the hearing where it's like, have you ever tried a case? He's like, no. Have you ever been at a case? He's like, no. You know, like that was just Do you know what a judge so is? Ridiculous. A what? Right. He's like, court what is i went to law school yes you're like this is nuts do you think okay so on the judge question and i'm glad you brought this up one of the things that 
when, when you look at the past presidencies, um, you know, the actions that the people make within those presidencies, it takes 10, 15, sometimes 20 years before you actually see the repercussions of them. I, I am... I'm very partisan in my political beliefs, but I'm not partisan in my judgment of past presidents. And I think that one of the reasons that we have the incarceration problem today, um, especially with blacks and Hispanics, is because of rules put in place by the Clinton administration in the 90s. And I wonder what you think will be the repercussions of the judges that Trump is putting into place today, 5, 10, 15 years from now. Two things. One, and this is no defense. You know, I see these things that people are like, you're defending the Clintons. No defense of the Clintons. One of the things that I'm interested in in the crime bill is a parallel to the First Step Act. Do you know the dark side to the First Step Act? No. Why we don't consider it a win? No. So the First Step Act uh, recalculated... The, the biggest thing the First Step Act did is that it recalculated good time credit. So... Explain this to listeners from the beginning so they understand. So you you earn credits for being good and like for not having any infractions in prison. And what the first step act did is that it essentially allowed you to earn more credits quicker, so people can get out. So you earn enough credits, and there's a part of your sentence that's lessened, so people can get out quicker. That is a win, and that is the only like the law had to change for that to change. Like it couldn't be done administratively. Sessions couldn't have done it. Most of everything else in the law, Sessions could have just done. He just refused to do. So, like, not shackling women at childbirth was a policy decision. Uh, having people be housed close to where they were, like, to with having people be housed in a prison close to their, like, neighbor they grew up in, policy decision. All those things are policy decisions that got codified. But the biggest thing the first effect did was change the the rules around good time credits. Uh, with the, so, about 3,000 people got out. That is ostensibly a good thing. It's like 2% of the prison population, uh, but good for 3,000 people. The hard part is that of the 3,000 people, about 750 of them were immediately put in deportation proceedings, which is not a win, right? Is that Mm -hmm. we actually don't trade immigrants for drug dealers. Like that's like not a best practice. No. And you think about how in this moment, everybody we love voted for it. Kamala, Corey, Warren, Booker, AOC, uh, the whole squad voted for it. All the people who like their values are such that they would never vote for something that deported people like that. Like that is just not, you know? So when I think about the crime bill, I'm reminded of how like good people supported policies that were just like so bad. You know what I mean? So did the, did the squad and all those folks vote for it because they, they, they didn't understand what was going to happen or because they, they believed that, oh, well, fine, we'll get 2,300 people that are out of jail. No, and I think that Trump just played a better game. I think they didn't know. I think that, uh, you know, we've talked to some of them and they literally didn't know the deportations were nestled in. They voted for it because, uh, or they thought Trump wasn't going to pass it in. The, so they voted for it to like symbolize that they cared about criminal justice because as you know, Obama couldn't pass a piece of legislation for criminal justice. So people wanted to be on the right side of the issue and just didn't pay attention to the details or they didn't think it would pass the Senate or they didn't think that Trump would sign it. But all those things actually happened and like, Again, everybody we love voted for it. Wasn't like some, it wasn't some lone standout. Everybody voted for it. So I do think about the Clinton administration as his peer where like there were a host of people who should have known better. You know what I mean? And I think about like how do we – I'm interested in how do we make sure that we guard against uh, those things continuing to happen. So I, I do blame uh, Bill Clinton for a host of these. And I blame all the people who participated in this and now are like we didn't know. You know, like that's sort of a – uh, that's sort of a wild thing. So do you think that, going back to the question of, of the Trump thing, I mean, I, I know we don't know what the repercussions are, but the 
we can you can kind of look at Black Lives Matter and work backwards and 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 some of the we're, we're going to talk a lot about this in a little bit about um, the, the repercussions of police forces and militarization and uh, unarmed citizens and especially African American citizens that have been uh, been shot or arrested and so on. Do you think that the people that the judges that Trump is putting in will lead to kind of more racism in the courts? Will it lead to stricter legislation, stricter laws being passed? Will it lead to um, people higher sentencing? Like, what do you think some of the repercussions are going to be? Yeah. So first is that I don't think the judge battle is over. So the judges can be impeached. It's just not happened before. You know, the judges appointed by the Senate can be impeached by the Senate. We just have not done that before, but I think this would be a great time to dust off the Constitution and <laughs> for the next Senate to figure out how to undo this, you know, and just call this guy an aberration. And, and this is like why there's a Congress in the first place to undo damage that has been done. So uh, not over. But yeah, you know, I, I have a case of the Fifth Circuit and the Fifth Circuit has... I lost a case at the Fifth Circuit that we're appealing what, to what the Supreme Court. What was the case? Uh, so I was arrested in, I've been sued by five police officers in two states. Uh, I was arrested in Baton Rouge and got sued by an officer who got hit that night, like he got hit by rock. And he blamed me for it. We got it dismissed at the lower court. It got appealed to the Fifth Circuit where there are a shocking number of Trump appointees that just got put on. It's the most conservative court of appeals. Uh, and we lost at the appeals court. So the appeals court ruled that I can be held civilly negligent for this officer getting, getting hit because I should have known that blocking a highway would have necessarily led to violence. Uh, so we're appealing that because that is just not helpful That's to me. Crazy. Yeah. More helpful to <laughs> a host of people. Um, but I say all that to say that I think that we're actually already seeing the courts do really interesting things across the country. We're seeing the conservative uh, aspect. What I think will happen, I think that, A, it's not over. I think that we can still fight these judges. So I think that that's a win. Or it could be a win. I think the second is that, you know, judges can't can't penalize people for things that aren't crimes. And I think that part of what Democrats can do that'll be interesting is like, do you just decriminalize a whole host of things? Just like strip the power of judges in another way, mm. uh, which could be interesting with mandatory minimums and stuff like that. Uh, so we'll see. But there are great organizations like the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, the Leadership Conference, who are tracking the judges. What's your feeling on the impeachment and, um, and where things stand with that? And the potential that he may be pushed out of office. Do you actually think something's going to come of it? Or do you think it's going to require us getting people to the polls in 2020 and voting him out? I think we'll have to vote him out. I think that the only downside to impeachment now is that it was late. They should have been fighting this man for, you know, because the interesting thing about impeachment is that it is slowing him down just a little bit, you know, from inflicting the damage that he's been inflicting. And they should have done this a while ago. I think that people would be more jazzed about the party if they felt like the party is willing to fight. And I think that this party is only willing to fight uh, at the 11th hour when most of your family has already been killed in the house and you're the last person. You're like, well, I probably should fight now. You're like, well, I think you probably should have fought when they walked into the house with a gun, right? <laughs> like you probably should have done something. And that's what's happening now is that it's the 11th hour. The party is sort of like on its last leg because the election's happening. So to, to let him just run wild is like a bad political strategy. So like they got to look like they're fighting him back. And I think that that's why impeachment comes in this moment. So you, you, you spent a lot of time talking to the folks and all these, all these different Democrats, AOCs, groups, the squad, so on and so forth. Is there a feeling like in Congress that, that certain people want to be doing more and then certain people are pushing back or that, that we all, <clears throat> you know, I think that the one thing that the Republicans do so well is someone will say, let's do this. And they'll all be like, great, let's do it. And there's no, there's very little infighting within the party. Um, 
even if people don't necessarily agree with something, they say, okay, it's, you know, it's one for all and all for one, and, and that's it. And Mitch McConnell is a perfect example of that. And it seems like in with the Democrats, they still haven't got their shit together to say, okay, well, I believe this and you believe that, but let's just kind of all push forward because it's what the party needs. Do you kind of get the impression that that there could be more fissures coming? Uh, I think that the difference between the parties, right, is that the the right is is engaged in political nostalgia. They're trying to take us back to a time that we barely survived in the first place, which doesn't take a whole lot of imagination. I think the 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 left is trying to build a world that we've never seen before, and there are disagreements about how we get to that world. Healthcare is a great example. Most of the left agrees that like people should have doctors wide disagreement about how we get to a world where people have doctors, right? Whereas the right is sort of like, only rich people should have really good doctors. You're like, well, that's like an easier idea. You know, they're like, poor people are unhealthy because they made bad decisions and we shouldn't be paying for that, which is like a insidious but like simple idea. So I think that that's one of the big differences. I also think that the left, um, again, is like not playing to an expanded base, but is playing to like a who's always voted base. And I think that that is just a scary way to that. You know, from... Baltimore and I've lived in Minneapolis and a host of places. And you think about Baltimore that like, if you got 18 to 21 year olds to vote, it would change. It would literally change yeah, what the city looked completely. like. Right. But as long as 40 year old votes, I get why like that TV ads look the way they do. And, I, and you know, I think that people frankly are hoped out. I think that Obama got everybody in the hope train train crashed uh, with, especially for people of color, it crashed around Trayvon. It certainly crashed around the protests that people realize that like the hope didn't come. And I think that people are a little cynical in this moment. People are like, uh, you talk about what the government can do. I've never seen it. Right. And I think that people, I think that that's why the midterms are important because for the first time people were like my vote, they saw their vote materialize into, you know, yeah. trans people in, uh, in elected office across the country and the historic number of women and people, you know, like they actually saw it turn into something, even if this Congress hasn't been able to pass anything. And now, when you look at, you know, one of the problems when you talk to any pollster or uh, anyone who's kind of, uh, I've, I've had David Pluff on recently, um, and he was talking about, you know, one of the biggest problems is that we don't get enough people out to vote. 91 million eligible voters did not vote in the Trump-Clinton election. And we saw an increase, of course, in the midterms, as you said. But the worry is that the, those 18 to 24 year olds are going to be like, yeah, my vote won't count. It doesn't matter. It doesn't make a difference. Like how do you convince them to get back on the hope train? So this was, I don't know. I think the hope train is not the train to get back on. This was our fight with Obama. And this is like, every time I talked to him, it was like, Hey, I think this is bad messaging. I think that there's a way to position voting as the thing. And that's what the, that's what the establishment does. This is what Obama participated in. It's certainly what the party does. They're like, if you care about the country vote, if you want to make a difference vote, if you, like really want to get rid of Trump vote. And I think that that message, I think that there's like truth to that. The hard part of that is that there are people like me who like voted my entire life. I got tear gas. I got dragged out of police department by my ankles. I got arrested. I've seen the police do unspeakable things to people all across the country. And it wasn't because I didn't vote, you know, I voted and the world didn't change the way I wanted it to, you know? So I know with my lived experience that the vote is not the thing that's going to make everything better. Cause I lived it. Right. I do think that part of the way we have to talk about this is like voting is one is one way to exercise your power as a citizen and you should exercise your power in as many ways as you can, right? So voting is as important as the protest and as important as testifying and as important as like rallying your aunt and uncle that voting is like one of the many tools in a toolbox so that people aren't like, don't think that you're like a naive sort of 
person when you're like, well, voting's going to do the thing. It's like voting, our lives have showed that voting wasn't like the thing. It's like all of the things together. But it's the one of the biggest. I mean, if, if, if we could get that point across that it is, I mean, Trump would not be in office if, give or take, 10 to 100,000 people had voted differently in certain counties. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I remember uh, in two, my dad lived in uh, Broward County in uh, 2000, and he, he didn't vote. And he always used to say, my vote doesn't count. And that county, to 200 and something people, decided the election. And now he votes. And I, I, I always think about how, when you kind of look at it from such a minuscule level, the, uh, the, how important those votes are. And yet, we can't get that point across to 90 million people. Yeah, I just don't, I think that's like the wrong, you think about like, how do we get free breakfast in the country? It wasn't because people voted. It was because like the Panthers were like, I think people should have free breakfast and we're going to model this, right? How do you, how did, how do we have a nationwide conversation about the police and criminal justice? It wasn't because people voted. It was because like people stood in the middle of the street and were like, this is nuts. So, so I say that not to say that voting is not important, but I think that people's like real lives have showed that like, uh, how did how did people start talking about sexual assault with women? It wasn't like people showed up at the polls and were like, you know what, sexual assault's like the issue I'm voting for. It was like <laughs> good reporting and activism that changed. Yeah. So when people see these sea changes that they can feel in touch, it actually wasn't voting that like allowed that to happen. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. So what's your what is your belief on what percentage of art of everyone's time should be devoted to some sort of activism and involvement in in government or you know there's there are some people who i've spoken to who are like don't read the news spend your time with your family be a good neighbor and like that's it there are other people that are like you should drop everything you're doing and go march on the steps of washington and it's like where's the balance and what is your advice to people when they kind of say they want to be involved but they're not sure how much to be involved and so on yeah i think that um I think that for people of color and poor people, I think that they are always a little, I think that people just have proximity to the pain in a different way. So they're always sort of thinking about the issues, whether they are active, whether they identify as activists or not, they're sort of, they understand the way the system is like bearing down on their lives. So for people like that, uh, I'm, I am interested in like how we get people involved. I don't know if I have a percentage of time because. What's the advice you give people when they ask you though? You, well, what's the advice you give them when they say, what should I be doing? Well, what should I be? So I, what I say to people is a couple of things. One is like, you need to know the system well enough to be able to fight it. Like you need to know it enough to be dangerous that there are, um, you know, I'm mindful that experience is not analysis. Like, cause you, both my parents were addicted to drugs and uh, because they were addicted to drugs doesn't make me like an expert on addiction. It makes me like an expert on my experience, right? That if I want to be an expert on addiction, I actually have to do a little bit of work to, to understand things. So, when there are people close to problems, I want to remind them that they being close to the problem does not mean understanding like the problem at a deep level. So I want them to, to do that. The second is that uh, we have to start imagining better that like people who are close to problems, like uh, you lose your ability to imagine because imagination can be dangerous and that you actually learn the constraints really well as a matter of survival. So like when I was a kid growing up poor, it's like I knew exactly, my grandmother knew exactly how long $20 could go because we had to. Like you had to know how far that could go because like it was a matter of survival. Whereas I think the only way we'll win is if we actually start to imagine about systems and dream big and stuff like that. I think people of privilege, I'm always telling people, you know, I spend most of the time on issues of police. And I'm telling people of privilege that they should actually be the people fighting for all the issues that'll never impact their lives, right? It should be like rich white people out here being like, the police are killing people because... 
it means something completely different when you walk in the room and say it than when I say it. When I mm. say it, people are like, well, of course, DeRay is an activist. And da-da. When you say it, you know, I was with this woman who runs corporate giving at a major airline, and she's like, what can I do? And I'm like, you guys should come out with a public statement in support of food stamps. Because, like, it costs you nothing. Like, you've never made a public statement about this before, and you can't fund food stamps because it's a federal program anyway. Uh, so nobody's thinking you're going to give a donation. But, like, your lobbying for food stamps would be, like, the most randomly... <sighs> interesting part of political activism much more important than any random food bank that you're going to fund as a one-off in a random city do you know what i mean yeah like those like that's what people with privilege should be fighting for all these things that like aren't their property tax themselves i just i just tried to imagine all these like rich people and rich white people in beverly hills like out in the street uh you know saying black lives matter it's a it's a it's a stretch because i think most of them are you know i think one of the problems with the internet is that it puts us in this in a bubble that we can't get out of and we you know you you see it you see people it's like there's two different twitters there's a left twitter and a right twitter there's two different youtubes there's two all, all these different there's two different news sites there's there's hundreds of different news sites but it it puts us in these bubbles that makes it so we don't actually see what's really going on in the world and i think that's part of the problem um yeah, I don't know if we're, you know, I always struggle with the idea of an echo chamber that I, I think that with people of color and poor people, it's not really an echo chamber. It's like a community, right? Like for the first time, you actually can talk to people who have an experience like you. I think that with people uh, a privilege, it is always a choice to only be around people that like, poor people don't have a choice to like, you know, it's a famous Toni Morrison or Ball. I think it's a Baldwin quote that's like, I know white people really well because I've had to sort of maneuver around them my entire life, right? Mm-hmm. That like, you don't get a choice to not participate and hosted communities. Uh, but I think what's interesting, this idea of like the people in Beverly Hills out protesting, it's like, maybe they don't need to go out in the street, right? They're like, if you have the mayor's number, just call them, like go to dinner, whatever, however you normally <laughs> lobby. Yeah. No, do that. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah. We'll need yeah. you out there performing it. And I think that's what I find so interesting. And I'm, you're in a lot of rooms. I'm in a lot of rooms where there are well-meaning people. And it's like, you need to figure out how to use your access for good and it doesn't have to be like standing in the middle of the street, you know? Well, I think that's one of the problems that is that a lot of people, even incredibly smart people, you know, they don't necessarily know what they're supposed to be doing. It's almost like they're, uh, I think that, you know, pre-technology, it was like, oh, put on a badge, go to a protest, do this, that, and the other. I've been to protests and I don't necessarily, I think they have a little bit of an impact, but they do not have the impact they once did. I agree. Um, And I remember once during when Bush was in office going to DC on a bus and, and protesting the Iraq war and walking by the white house. He wasn't even at the white house. Like he wasn't looking out the window. He was like somewhere else, like playing golf or I don't know, riding a tricycle or something. And and I just, I don't think that they have that sort of impact. And I think the problem is, is that we have a lot of people that are like, well, what am I supposed to do? And all they think they have to do is tweet, which of course is not what you do. I do think too, that one of the things that happened, and I think we saw this in 2014, is that all of a sudden protests became sort of reawakened for a generation. There was like people like me who had never stood in the middle of the street and we're like, ah, we're taking the streets. Uh, is that I think, you know, one of the things that we realized pretty quickly is that we protest not to protest, but to like, uh, create space for a solution, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that what happened is that there were so many more people that suddenly were like, put me to work, and that the organizing infrastructure across the country just wasn't equipped to absorb all those people, you know? So you yeah. think about like your favorite, whatever, nonprofit, you give them 10,000 volunteers and they literally like, I don't know, they're like, we barely know what to do with five volunteers. You know, I think that like that infrastructure just wasn't there. Yeah. 
uh, because it had been magazine. The thing about the civil rights movement is that most of the stuff that you can remember from the civil rights movement actually came out of institutions, right? They came out of like schools, churches that had these necessarily like they had structures for how to deal with volunteers and deal with da 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 da. And the protest this time sort of emerged in the middle of the street. And I do think that's like a different uh, thing. I also think that our obsession with celebrity is. Uh, I was going to ask you about that. Interesting. So you, when you look at, and I want to segue into the prison reform stuff you've been working on. When you look at what's happened with the Trump administration with, you know, incarceration and so on. All I think about is Kanye West and Kim Kardashian and which is just mind boggling to me. And I don't necessarily think Kanye West cares about anything but Kanye West. And what do you think, what's happening in in the Trump administration? You know, Jared Kushner, of course, seems to care about this issue because partially because his dad was incarcerated. Um, is it getting worse? Is it getting better? Is it having an impact? Is 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 it it's just as mind boggling to you that that two reality TV stars and a uh, you know, are the the voice of this and deciding who they're going to try to get freed and so on. Like, what what do you what is you what are your thoughts on this as someone who has been involved in this for so many years? Yeah, I think that uh, I think that when we think about celebrity, celebrity is fundamentally about spectacle, and I think that we're in a moment where the spectacle. I think that one of the things that happens for there are a set of people who have literally never been seen and heard before. Like part of what it means to grow up in a marginalized community is that you grow up on the margin and on the margin you're unseen and unheard. And in this moment, there are a lot of people who are being seen and heard in ways that they have never been seen and heard, as you know, as a reporter. And you, you know that there are some people who like are addicted to being seen and heard way more than they're addicted to being free. Donald Trump. Right. <laughs> uh, or even well-meaning people though, who yeah. like, they did that one interview and now you just see them doing like, I mean, you're like, I don't even know what you're saying, but you just like have to be at the party or have to be at the, like they just, they've never been seen their whole life. And I think that that bleeds into like what our obsession with celebrity is in this moment, that the spe- people actually want to be the spectacle, which is why they like are enamored with spectacle, insert Kim and Kanye here and Donald Trump. Uh, you know, Kim and Kanye did very little. Again, champion the, the first step back is not a win, so I don't count that as like some positive thing that happened in the world. And then freeing people, I think that the right is just always playing the long game. And I think the left is, just doesn't get it. I think that what's going to happen is uh, they are going to. So right now, I don't know if you've seen, but some of the people who got freed from the first step act are on like tour. Essentially, they're like giving talks. And you can't hate them. They're great, right? They shouldn't have been incarcerated. They're good people. You love the story. The first step back is what got them out and Trump was president. And they are sort of, and they're not, they're not like screaming Trump's name, but they are telling this story about getting released. And right now it's harmless because like, whatever. I think that when the election actually becomes an election and not this sort of weird campaigning moment we're in, I think that they are going to be turned into like the best ambassadors for Trump, mm-hmm. like for people of color. Yeah. Because you see them and it's like, I was at this one panel and there's a woman who like looks just like my grandma. She sounds just like my grandma. And like she would, you hear and you're like, maybe Trump isn't a bad guy. And then you're like, no, 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 no. He is <laughs> nuts. But I think they're, I think that the right is just playing like a much better long They game. always do. I think that Kim and Kanye are just like pieces of it. Yeah, Kim and Kanye for them, it's a, it's a, another flashlight staring in their face and, I mean, a spotlight, sorry, staring in their face and they're like, oh, look, more attention for me. And it's their way to be like, I don't hate black people. I, I Kanye over. I love black people. Those <laughs> black people are just bad, but like Kanye's great, you know? You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. When you look at some of the some of the prison research you've done uh, and you've been involved with, you did the Mapping Violence Project, and 
Uh, what I find astounding about that is the number of people who have been killed by police and the number of people who have been killed by police who were unarmed. Is there, first of all, I'd love for you to talk about some of the data and the trends that you've seen, because uh, it's fascinating to hear you t- tell, tell some of these numbers. But is th- has there been a response to Black Lives Matter that has made things better? Or is it just that people are a little more, police officers or certain people are a little more scared because there's cameras out now? So when you look at the polls uh, after the protests, it's the first time that a majority of white people recognize systemic uh, racism in the country, which is a win. So I think perception has changed. Uh, I think that an understanding of the issues, is certain, I mean, we're all talking about criminal justice, there are all these documentaries and films, all this stuff that like is a direct response to the protests. I also think that you saw this renaissance in blackness that happened. Like all of a sudden we're talking about black culture and that came out of the energy that was the protest in 2014. That's fascinating to put that, you had to piece that together. It's completely. I think the hard part is that the police have actually killed more people, not less since the protest hasn't gone down. Uh, And we are always reminded not to confuse a change in conversation with a change in outcomes. Like the conversation changed, the outcomes got worse, right? Which is a bad thing. Why is that? Do you think? I think we know now is that, you know, with the police, well, we didn't understand it. We did two other projects. So we did map and police violence first because we were trying to understand the data. Yeah. Uh, and then we did this project around police union contracts and then use of force policies because we were like, our, our gut was that there must be something at the structural level that like there's something that we just don't see. And we were right. Is that the police sort of know that the worst consequence of one bad killing is probably going to be really bad for the officer. But, like, nothing's going to – and it probably actually won't be really bad for the officer. It'll be a bad PR storm for the officer, but, like, 99% of officers are not charged when they kill people. So it's probably really not going to be bad for the officer in in the end. But they almost can guarantee that nothing about the structure will change. Uh, and until the structure changes, it won't matter. So California is an interesting place because California has a law that says that any investigation of an officer that lasts more than a year can never result in discipline regardless of the outcome. How old is that law? Uh, it's like 15, 20 years. Wow. So you think about like, there are a whole set of cases in San Diego where the police were being investigated and their own investigators took longer than a year. All of them got dismissed. And do you think that that is intentional? Absolutely. So I think one, one of the things is you kind of, I don't think all police are bad. I don't think all anything is good or bad, right? Is it a, is it that, but there is camaraderie, right? There's these, uh, there are these, tribes and you want to protect the people in your tribe and of course what bigger tribe than the the police force and the fire department and so on and so forth is it just like i'm going to protect my guys and that's it or is it is it is there an act of a part of it that's racism is it a part of it that's that well that person would have deserved it anyway it would have happened like what is the thinking that goes on within the police departments yeah i'm actually not interested in like the psychoanalysis of them i'm more interested in the way we set up the institution so you think about like you have kids imagine if the kids how old are your kids two and a half and four and a half so the four and a half year old is in pre-k tk tk adorable it is very adorable he's very proud of it i love it (laughs) like imagine if your kid came home with bruises like every week and you went up to the school and you're like what's happening and they're like teacher just hit someone fridays (laughs) you're like what and you're like well why is the teacher still employed and they're like can't fire him and you're like well i think that's sort of nuts your response wouldn't be like you know what this is just like the cost of an education you would be like get this person out of here yeah or like a doctor you think about in the hospital it's like 
people make people are people. Doctors make mistakes. But imagine like you sent your kid in for a checkup and all of a sudden like he comes out worse every time he sees his doctor. And you're like, well, why did the doctor poison my kid? And they're like, you know what? This is just like what medicine looks like. You'd be like, this is unacceptable. The police, like imagine in policing, the worst thing that you do, get you sent to a training. That is like a really wild, that's just like a, as an institution that's failed. So whether the whether it's camaraderie or covering up, it's like imagine if the worst thing you did, you got sent to training, that's what it's like to be a police officer. What do you think, so when you see the rise in killings and also, I mean, your data says it's, you know, you are three times more likely to be shot and killed if you're black versus white. Is it, is there more fear by the police officers that they will be caught on camera or any, I would imagine that that would play a role in what would, I mean, I know they would, they're like, oh, my buddy Frank, he killed someone, didn't go to jail. Like nothing happened to him. So, but I would imagine that, that living in the world we live in today where everyone has a, a phone out and everything's being recorded, that it would actually stem some of the violence from police departments. Yeah, but, but it only stems it if you know something's going to happen, you know? Huh. Like, why would it? So again, if somebody like videotaped your kid's teacher, like pushing down the stairs and the teacher knew that the worst thing that could happen to them was like being sent to a training for a day and then coming back. Like, why would their behavior change? You know? So I have a question about one of the data points. So uh, it's 21% of, uh, of black people who are shot and killed by police are unarmed. How does, how do you even kill someone who's unarmed in a justifiable way? Like what are the instances that happen that, that even could in a million years justify that? So with, especially when you have a taser, Right. right. I mean, so the police will say that they, it was too dark to understand whether it was a cell phone or a gun and they had to make split second decisions and they are legally protected. And like, they sort of always present the confusion defense that like, I didn't know, or how was I supposed to know this was your house? I got a call that said it. So that's what I think is going to happen. You saw that last case where the, where the officer went to the woman's house and shot her on yep. the couch, Tatiana, yep. uh, is that, I don't know if you read, but the dispatcher screwed up too. So it wasn't just, so the officer did go into the house and kill him, uh, kill her. But the dispatcher, the call was that like the door was left open. The dispatcher communicated like a vacant building that might've like suggested that somebody like broke into this property. Like mm. that is what the dispatcher said. So I could see the officer is going to get off because the officer is going to say, like, I was given faulty information. So he will be off the hook for, like, any decision he made. And he'll be like, it was moving quickly. I didn't know. And that defense is, like, pretty popular people. What's interesting, too, and we're actually starting a project on this, is that a lot of the police cases uh, hinge on non-legal things. So the police say things like, we face more split-second decisions than anybody else. Like, those sort of things are, like, I'm afraid for my life. Like, these things that, like, aren't really legal arguments, but because of the way that the police have been situated in the public imagination, they just get away with, you know? Like, you've seen a million cop shows where the cops are, like, saving the world and did it not. Yeah. Like, do you know what it means when, I, when, I, when the police say they solved a case or a case was cleared? What, do you know what that means? Like, what are the actions that led to solved? Uh... But that it's closed. That it, not that they solved it, right? What is close? How do you even close it? Like, what are? <clears throat> well, I, I would imagine in California that after one year the case is done, right? So it doesn't make a difference. So for like, I'm talking about just general crime, like not the police. I don't know the answer to this question. I feel terrible. No, you should write about this. <laughs> is that so? In the country, when the police say they solved a case, it literally is just a proxy for at least one arrest was made. So they could if there's 
some terrible crime by a police officer killing a black man. And Forget the police killing somebody. Say somebody breaks into your cousin's house mm-hmm. and you look at the stats and they list it as like crime solved. That literally just means that they arrested a person for it. Not the right person. Just not, a person. Just a person. Like that is wild. That is not like a, so when you see these crime stats, it's not even like, it's not like the police. That would be like me turning my column into my editor and like, just like grabbing something else about like daffodils and him being like, Where's your calm? I'm like, oh, I gave him a calm. I turned Daff- it in. It's daffodils. It's just words. So it's not even like the police are here doing some like a, what you see on TV and what's happening in real life are like two, are two very, very different things. So in Baltimore, 20% of the fatal shootings are solved. 20%. That's 20%. You arrested a person. That's not a 20% conviction. Like we're putting a whole lot of money in a solution that like isn't actually a solution. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. When you look at all this data and the numbers and everything, like there are certain cities that have much, much, much higher um, uh, results of of gun deaths uh, with police killing uh, black men. Uh, Oklahoma, I think, is six times more likely than Georgia. Um, Phoenix. Phoenix. Why? There's there's that's got to offer some sort of answer to what's going on right we don't really know uh so there are places like oakland there are places like baltimore where public pressure has changed the way that the police just work right so uh not that not that the police in oakland are great they are the data is just showing that they are killing less people right that it from a number perspective less people are being killed in baltimore same thing uh and then there's some places like phoenix that have a notoriously anti-immigrant and Problematic police department. Also interesting is that there's some places where the murder rate includes the people killed by police. Wow. So like in Phoenix, one in five people killed in Phoenix is actually killed by a police officer, which is... But don't these cities look at, at, at the data and say, oh, we're not doing so great. Maybe we should kind of change things. No, they sort of are like everybody did something bad, you know? They're sort of like... The police will say to us, every case is different. You can't aggregate it like this. Uh, the circumstances led to blah, blah, blah. Like that's sort of the argument that they make. So we were just in Portland, Oregon, and we said, we did this big presentation before the city council. And we said to them that like half of the uses of force by the Portland police are actually against homeless people. And the mayor was like, I don't think that data's right. And we were like, this is actually the data from the Portland police website that we pulled last night. And he's like, oh, and you're like, you have a. You guys are targeting homeless people. Do you know what I mean? Like that is like actually what half of the use of force against homeless people is a really dramatic number, and part of it is like replaying it for people so that they like pay attention and they see, uh, so they see what's going on, so that we can force some conversation. It is now two, the, a third of all the people killed by a stranger in the country is killed by a police officer. A third of all. Wow. The people killed by a stranger. Yeah, that was a report that HR DAG, uh, which is most known for doing. They estimate the number of people killed in like refugee crises and civil wars. Uh, they did this. So you have this data point that 99% of cases in 2015 have not resulted in any officers involved being convicted of a crime. And the graph is kind of astounding to look at. Is is that just that the, the, that one year passed in certain states and things like that? Same. or It's the same across all the years. What's interesting is that... If you get killed in the country and a newspaper doesn't write about you, then you don't exist in the data set because the government doesn't really keep the numbers. So there have been years where the state of Florida has reported zero killings. The whole state, they're like, we didn't kill anybody. (laughs) Even though they did. You're like, we know that's a lie. Like we, the funerals say that's a lie. Like that is just not true. 
so it was incredible activists way before us who started to develop ways to track this across the country to see like how many people the police are killing. And that's actually the most official data that we have. The government is only now starting to collect data, but doesn't require departments, and there's no penalty for not sending it in. When you look at the future of like um, of the the activism that you're working on and these issues, it's, it seems like the the way that you're going to affect change is by going and meeting with the mayors and the police departments and so on and so forth. So I have a, a two part question for you. One is, what is do, do all cops, when you walk in, they're like, oh, it's DeRay. Hate this guy. Or are some of them like, look, we really want to make a change in our department. We, we want to understand what's going on. We're, we feel terrible. That's the first part of the question. And, and the second part is you go meet with the mayor of Portland and you present the state. And he's like, that's not right. And you're like, actually, it's right. And do you leave and there's some sort of change that happens? So interestingly, police chiefs are generally fine. They're fine. They like get it. They want it to be better. Most police chiefs in big cities are fine. They're fine off the record. They like will be fine. Uh, the way police departments are set up is that they have very little power to move people around. So I've had police chiefs say, I get it, but I can't let go of any of the sergeants, any of the commanders, any of the lieutenants. So I'm sort of stuck in this structure and I literally cannot fire people. I can't move people around, like da-da-da. So they feel constrained by the system in terms of making change. And like, I want them to fight harder, but I as a str- I get that, right? Uh, so they're generally fine. I think that the unions are always upset with us. Uh, well, the unions are always trying to defend their people and don't care about anything, right? Yeah, they are always really intense. I think that people, we walk into the room too and people expect us to fight. They expect it. They expect battle. They expect me to come and be like, I can't believe. And it's like, we're just like not like that in a meeting. Like we can be pretty chill in the meeting because like we know the truth is on our side so we don't need to fight about it. In Portland, we did that big presentation. The uh, police union released a statement the next day denouncing us. Uh, in places like Portland, there's a really incredible a city council person who is just great and she is who invited us. So in places like that, that uh, we can go and help lift these conversations to the public. Why would the police union uh, denounce you guys when all you're doing is presenting the data? Because they, you know, I, their statement wasn't wasn't uh, convincing, but it was sort of like they hate police, and we, you know, because we're saying that police unions have clauses that nobody else has. So, like in West Palm Beach, Florida, I just analyzed this contract the other day. Uh, if if somebody files a complaint against a police officer, there's a panel that gets put together of three people uh, called the complaint review panel. Uh, the panel has one person appointed by the police chief or like the agency. That makes sense. One person's appointed by the accused. So the person the complaint is against gets to appoint one person to the panel. And then both of those people appoint the third person. And you're like, <laughs> that's amazing. You're like, what is this? <laughs> Like, That's there's insane. no version of that that makes sense. In Baltimore, similar thing. Uh, you get a panel of three people. The accused has the power to strike all three people. And you're like, well, this is not a, this is a sham. You know what I mean? So the unions, what they said in Portland, the only thing that they could hang their head on, they were like, we have the same protections that all the that firefighters and teachers have, which is not true. But they sort of tried to lump themselves in with all the unions to make it seem like we were attacking the idea of bargaining and not attacking these clauses in their contract. And we actually didn't even do a presentation on their contract as much as we did like contract. But we, you know, it's interesting. There are a lot of cities too that, you know, most of the cities have binding arbitration. So uh, it'll be like you get disciplined and you can uh, appeal to an arbitrator. The arbitrator has their decision is binding and final, right? 
really interesting research that has recently come out that shows that in places of arbitration, almost all of the discipline gets overturned, that that's just the way it works, right? So we were in a city recently, and the city lawyer was like, you know, if you if you tell people that arbitration isn't the way to do it, that's really radical. And, and we were saying to her, like, not radical. A lot of cities across the country that don't have arbitration. They're interesting models. I just read um, Tulare, I think. Tulare mm-hmm. is a place in California. Mm-hmm. Uh, their model is that like the board of supervisors is actually the final body and not the arbitrator. Right? There are all these interesting models. But a lot of city people, like city lawyers, a lot of police people only know their context. So they've never seen a contract that lets – or like I was fighting with another city lawyer because she was saying that like – uh, you can't suspend an officer without pay. I'm just picturing you on the phone being like, what the hell are you doing? I'm like, Slamming no. it. pick up the, what, get me this guy, I'm get like, me this I'm person. Like, let me send you this. So like, <clears throat> we can suspend an officer without pay and this is how the language looks mm-hmm. in a contract in another city. So we do a lot of like, not intense, not radical, this is actually normal somewhere else, right? Like to just help people realize the police have played a really great long game and one of the ways that the police work at the negotiating tables that you know is that the hardest thing in negotiations are things that have to do with money, right? Salaries, health insurance, stuff like that is that the police, like over 25 years, they realized that cities were broke. So they were like, cool, we're not going to ask for more money. We're going to ask for these things that have no cost impact, right? So they asked, like in Chicago, uh, discipline records are destroyed every five years. Like that is cost neutral, sort of. Uh, so they got all these sort of things in a way instead that- of, Instead of bigger raises, but at the same time, they get to do whatever they want. Whatever they want. What percentage- this is a total random question. I don't know if you have an answer for this, but what percentage of police officers do you think are bad and versus the percentage that are good guys and girls? Yeah, I just don't know if it's about like the people as much as like a structure. So in the same way that like, again, if if the teachers at your school knew they could do literally anything, anything. and they never get in trouble, it's probably good well, people. But who, yes, but if you, it, I, I have a, you know, I've had people on the show that some people who are like believe that, that we live in a world where, we are that there's a lot of evil and that society pushes back on it and and that that humans would predominantly be evil and i don't i don't believe that i I think think that that. society is an example of the fact that it is not you know there are bad people i do think power just corrupts people you think it's power yeah and i think that power and i host i've seen teachers who you know i used to run human capital in the school system in baltimore and i was the only person that could discipline people and I saw really well-meaning people do stuff that was, yeah. wow, you're like, what were you thinking, right? Yeah. But they thought that, I saw a principal once, a principal uh, told us she got hit by a, teach, uh, hit by a parent. She, got out, she goes out in workers' comp. We pull the video. She doesn't get hit by anybody. Really? She oh and God. it's like well-meaning people uh, who think that there's not going to be an accountability, so they make these decisions that are pretty epically bad you know what i mean yeah uh so when i think about the police i'm not stuck on the good people bad people as much as i'm stuck on like what happens and what is interesting is that the data shows that we track eight things around use of force all really common sense is that in places where they are present uh police use of force police violence drops dramatically so in places that ban chokeholds that restrict you from shooting and moving vehicles that require you to one of the things that we uh, believe is that officers should have to report every time they point their gun at somebody. Hmm. And the officers would be like, that's really burdensome. And you're like, well, how often are you pointing yeah, your exactly, gun at right? somebody? Right? So places that require an officer to intervene when they see their partner doing wrong, like these places actually dramatically uh, kill less people. And what's interesting is that in the cities where they are present, uh, it's actually safer for the police officer and safer for cities. All right. Two last questions for you, and then we're going to let you escape uh, this interview. The first is if... Do you think that there will be another Ferguson-like 
uh, flashpoint where people will come together to protest something that happens with the police and, and gun violence and, and uh, among African-Americans and so on. Like, is there a world where we see another moment like that that kind of brings all this back to the forefront? Or is, is it going to be a different kind of response? If I was a betting guy, I don't, I think that, you know, Ferguson was a phenomenon mm. and it happened in a way that, you know, it was a confluence of like Twitter in the right moment. It was, uh, you know, we were in a, we had incredible tunnel vision. So we didn't know the world was watching, which is how we could keep it going for so long. There were all these reporters who just happened to be there at the beginning. I think it was like this really interesting moment. I think that, uh, I think that there will likely be another flashpoint. I don't, I think it'll be at the end though of this celebrity moment. I think that that, I think that there are a lot of people who don't think it'll ever get better. So they sort of are just performing activism right now because they don't really think it'll get better. I think this is like, you know, what my father always says about addiction is that uh, there are a lot of people who have to hit rock bottom before they start to get better. Mm. And I think that there are a lot of people who will fo- who will yeah. wait until the country is literally like on its last breathing moment. And then they will be like, this is really wild. <laughs> Uh, last question, what are you going to be doing, uh, leading up to the election? Are you out there, you know, with a, a poster saying impeach this guy or are you, uh, you know, in Congress talking to people like what's, what are you doing leading up to trying to get this lunatic who is currently sitting in the white house I wanna, out? I want to, I've been, you know, I want to volunteer for a campaign. Hmm. I would love to be a surrogate. I think, you know, it's. In some ways, it's like more helpful to just uh, to be on the outside, sort of pushing the campaigns and like just align with one campaign. But more and more, I've wanted to like go knock doors and like that's like the stuff I love. I would love to do calls and, and figure out how to use my platform in ways I could be helpful. Um, I really like Elizabeth Warren. I was, I was about to say, who's your who's your pick? I don't love Elizabeth Warren's education. Her education, you know, the hard thing for me about Warren is that she bills herself as like the smart candidate and her team is incredible. Like I really do like the people over there. That's why I was so confused about how bad the education plan was. Uh, I wish Kamala would get out of her own way. Like I, mm-hmm. I like Kamala. I think that, uh, and this is what I said to her team is that like the, for her to be an expert on criminal justice, there's no big idea in the criminal justice plan. And like, that's sort of sad, you know, I was willing to give her a pass on most of the other things cause she's new to them. Cause she's her whole year, her whole life, her whole career doing criminal justice. And then that plan came out and it was like no big idea. And what are your feelings on Buttigieg? I am fascinated by Pete. I think that uh, to have zero percent support amongst black people is just like a really interesting thing and to still be able to raise that much money. So I'm fascinated by him. I mean, I like him. I think that he'll be around for a while. I think he's young. You know, I, I met Pete when he ran for DNC chair, you know, and like, I think he's masterfully like figured out how to stay relevant. And, you know, he was the mayor from South, who was checking for the mayor from South Bend? Nobody, you yeah. know. I like Corey. I think that Corey, I think that Corey, um, I think that Kumbaya Corey is a hard sell for people. Yeah. I think that Karate Corey is a much easier <laughs> sell for people. Corey. And we saw Karate Corey at um, that Senate hearing. Remember? Remember that Senate hearing yeah, where yeah, he was like, and you're like, seen Karate Corey a few times. But I think that that's the Corey that people would stand behind. I think the Karate Corey could have won a, couple, a while ago. I think that this is the moment where people want to fight her. All right. So, how does this play out? You think who wins? Who's the VP? Who? Uh, how do they beat Trump? I think contested or like nobody's going to win. I think it's going to be contested, whatever, however that works. Like yeah. nobody's going to get a majority. I think that we're going to get a woman somewhere, whether it's VP or president. I think that Warren's going to be one of those people. Uh, 
I think that Biden, I don't know. I think that I get Biden's political calculation because if I was Biden, it's like I've won everything I've ever run for. I've survived every criticism my entire life and continue to win. And I wouldn't count Biden out amongst, like, I think if the base doesn't grow, I could see Biden doing completely fine. Like, if it's, like, the normal voters, I think that he'll be fine. Uh, I don't, I think it'll be interesting to see what Bernie does if he loses. I think Bernie would be actually probably front and center right now if he hadn't had that heart attack. The heart attack, yeah. I think that that was, sadly, I mean, it's nothing he can do about it, but that was... Um, that's going to give voters pause. I think that um, I, I don't want Biden to be the next president. I, 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 I don't want anyone who, uh, who's been around. I think that people shouldn't be, shouldn't, I don't think anyone should have the same job for 50 years. I don't think that, you know, Especially it's like, in politics. Yeah. You should move over like term, like, you know, term limits. I think it should be one of the biggest things that we do. Term limits, the electoral college, like all what these. What do you think th- about the Bernie bros though? What do you think about Bernie or bus? I mean, I think it's just a silly, resp- I think it's really dumb, honestly. I think that it's a, you know, you have to, it's like, it's it's very, it's very make America great again, but with a different political uh, viewpoint. I think that it's like, well, it's my person or no one. And it's like, well, but if the majority doesn't want your person, then maybe you could kind of just move into the, the next lane over and you don't have to go all the way over to the far left lane. You just can, you can move one lane over and, and support the party. And I think, but that it comes back to, this is the problem with the democratic party from the, from the people who run it to the people who vote for it. They can't agree on anything and they will eat their own in order to, to be right. And, um, and I think that that's the biggest worry about why I personally don't know if Trump will lose in 2020. Do you think that, uh, do you think that the, that Facebook and Twitter, that they would be acting like this if not for a Republican, like a Trump presidency? Do you think that like Zuckerberg would be doing such incredible both sides with Breitbart and with the Daily Caller, if not the fear of Trump? I think that um, someone said this best recently uh, on social media. They said that, tr- that that Mark Zuckerberg is not a Democrat or a Republican. He's a, a Facebookian and all he cares about is Facebook and growing Facebook and that's it. And I think that in his mind... Um, I'm sure he probably leans a little bit more left um, uh, on cultural issues and so on and so forth. Um, I, I don't think that he uh, le- he definitely does not lean left on economic issues, as you saw his response to Warren. I think as far as Jack Dorsey goes, he is someone who I think is afraid to make a decision uh, in in one way or another because he doesn't want the backlash from either either side, and so he doesn't make a decision, which is why Twitter is the way it is today, the cesspool that it is today. But I think that you know, at the end of the day, you know, I remember years ago I was in the business section of the New York Times and working on uh, stories about Wall Street bankers and this, that, and the other. And at the end of the day, they're of the party of their money, and that's it. And I think. Um, Silicon Valley talks a big game about how they care about these issues, but at the end of the day, they're in the power, uh, in the party of their own power and their own money, and and that's what it comes down to. What would be the decisions that you think a Jack should make? Like, what are, given the work that they've done, and this isn't even defenses, like Twitter, obviously, you know, is like the platform that yeah, we I use mean, the most. It's the, uh, that, this is where I have a, a really difficult time answering this question, is that on the one hand, and I've said this to many times on this podcast, you know, Kevin Kelly said to me once that, um, that? he's the guy who started Wired. He's a, a big techno okay. guy. He's written tons of books and give, given amazing TED Talks on technology and, and the role it plays in society and life and so on. And he said to me once, 
that his, because I said, isn't technology, this was right after Trump won, I think. I was like, these are all these examples of technology being really bad with, you know, the coming AI and, and social media and all the bad things that happen. And he said that um, he looks at technology as something that is 51% good and 49% bad. But because it has that extra 1%, that makes it good, it is worth it. For, even if we get these bad things, we, society gets better as a result of technology. And what I believe, and I'm curious to, think, to hear what your thought is, that social media is the other way around, hmm. that it's 51% bad and 49% good. So for people involved in the Black Lives Matter movement and Me Too and so on and so forth, it is, it, without it, it wouldn't exist. But then at the same time, you have the Donald Trump movement and the rise of white supremacy and this, that, and the other. And the and I don't think we can say like, oh, we should just unplug it, although part of me would really love to. I think that that we need to figure out a solution that allows for the the 49% good uh, and somehow to switch to be 51% good. And I don't know what that is, but I don't think that anyone in Silicon Valley is thinking about it. Yeah, I would only say, and you know, I know the Twitter people well just because Twitter was our platform. Yeah. Uh, is that I, I find Jack and that crew to be a little more contemplative about these big issues uh, than I find the Facebook people. The I, Instagram people are interesting because they, I, I don't know if they always even think about these. Like, I think that they sort of exist in this yeah, world. This. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, hey, I think that there's a lot of hate on this platform. Uh, like, so, did you see my cappuccino this morning? I just think it's like a, they exist in a different world. Around, yeah. and, and, think, and I frankly think that activism is only recently on Instagram. Like, it's like a new thing on mm -hmm, Instagram mm -hmm. where it's like, Facebook issues have always been there, but I do, and I, I don't know. I just, I've seen the Twitter folks move um, slowly on some of the issues, but move in a way that like Facebook to me is like moving backwards. But, but at the same time, like Twitter, I don't disagree about Facebook moving backwards, but I, I'm not going to defend Mark Zuckerberg, but I think Twitter, how can you not, Put in a little system that says, let's fact check the fact that, you know, Trump tweets a lot of the time. He tweets these these statistics completely made <laughs> up. I mean, literally just pulled out of thin air about how crime is up and, and homicides are up. Go look at any federal, uh, you know, statistical database and, and you'll see that, I mean, Stephen Pinker wrote a whole book about this, like about how we actually live in a time period where things are better across the board. It may seem like they're worse because it's all being pushed in our face, but but I think that you have a responsibility to... Look, if Donald Trump would to, to say, you know, if I worked at the Washington Post and I'm interviewing Donald Trump and he said, you know, that, uh, um, that AOC shot someone in the face last week and killed them, I, I could write that quote in my story, but I would say that is actually incorrect. AOC never shot anyone in the face. And I think that we have a responsibility. The, these tech companies are not, they say they're not media platforms. They are without question media platforms. And they have a responsibility to set the record straight. And it is not a difficult thing for them to do. You know, Facebook was like, we can't deal with the, we can't find a solution to uh, to stopping the spread of anti-vaxxer stories on our site. It's, it's too difficult. And along comes Pinterest. And they literally just say, you can't search the word vaccine on our website. Boom, gone. That's it. No more anti-vax stories on Pinterest. It is actually quite easy to solve these right. problems. You could, you could, you could take Twitter. Could take a team of of ten people and say your job is to fact check every senator, 
and um, House Representative and President and Vice President, and to put a little a little link below their tweets to say that this is this you know here's a link to Polyfax or this that the other. It's not that hard. The solutions are not that difficult to say and to show and. Um, and they just choose not to. And I think it's because they're afraid to make decisions that could upset one group and not the other. On that note, DeRay. We it did is, it. We did it. Finally. Finally. Let's just hope this all recorded. Thank you so much for taking the we time. We're going to take a photo. We are? Okay. ka All right. Thanks, folks. DeRay, that was amazing. Done. As always, where can people oh. follow you and find your stuff and uh, listen to you? You can listen to Party of the People. Uh, uh, it's a crooked podcast party of the people comes out every Tuesday uh, the site is mapping police violence which is the data site that Nick talked about and then check the police.org has the contract information boom boom Thanks to my guest today, DeRay McKesson. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. That's me with a cold. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors, Lightstream, New Yorker, and Blinkist. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. Happy Halloween, and I'll see you all next week.